I get to um, do the Bible reading as well as preach this evening, so I've been trusted with a lot. But it would help if you found the Bible reading. We'll come to that in a bit. It'll just be part of the talk. Uh, uh, 1 Samuel 24, and it's on page 296. And if you want to know where the Bibles are, they're under the seats, tucked away somewhere. But just, you can put the Bibles to one side. We're going to be um, coming to them to, uh, in a few moments. Um, is it Desert Island Discs where people are allowed to take a couple of uh, books with them? Do you know what they are? The Bible? The complete works of Shakespeare? Anything else? Or you get to choose the two things. For those of you who take the complete works of Shakespeare to a desert island and actually read it, who knows the complete works of Shakespeare sort of from start to finish? Any of you, any of those do that at school? Anyone paying any attention at school? A few of you. Okay. Um, I'm assuming that we've got not very many Shakespearean scholars um, in the congregation this evening, but if there were three words from Shakespeare that are very famous and you know, uh, what would they be? You're allowed three words. To be or not quite, three words, to be or not to be. No, what? I think we've got it in the congregation somewhere. Et to... Brute. That's quite famous, isn't it? What does it mean? And you, Brutus, what was he about to do? Kill Julius Caesar. Um, in, I was going to give you another clue, if you, but you got there too early. Ides of March, Julius Caesar. What are the Ides of March? What date is the Ides of March? 15th of March. Very, very clever members of the congregation here. I didn't know that. I knew it was in March. That was close, wasn't it? Anyway, in terms of these things, um, I might have a sort of slightly light-hearted way into the talk this evening. Uh, but what was true just over 2,000 years ago is very sadly true today. I would call Julius Caesar and that scene, well-known scene, a knife crime. And we don't have to look too far away from here to know about knife crimes. A boy from Claygate, a footballer at Claygate Royal, stabbed just recently. Someone else um, stabbed in um, East London just recently. Jodie Chesney, 17-year-old scout explorer. And... Um, it's a bit of a national crisis, isn't it? And before we get it out of proportion, I'd like to argue that it's been the same for thousands of years. It's very, very serious indeed. But we're dealing with the same human condition, aren't we? Groups of people trying to take the law into their own hands. I was... Um, with someone this week um, who's a youth worker at Oxygen, which um, is in Kingston. Has anyone heard of that before? But one of the things that they do um, as part of that is they've got a program. They're part of the solution, not the problem. I think it's called What's the Point? And it's an initiative they take into schools, and they teach uh, young people how to teach young people to act responsibly around this whole area of knife crime. 
the passage from uh, 1 Samuel 24, um, speaking um, as part of our series as as, a man after God's own heart, David has an opportunity to do a little bit of knife crime. Um, Before we go there, I was just wondering, um, when this happens physically, it's a complete tragedy. Sometimes people get caught up in knife crime that are involved in gangs. And even if they are involved in gangs, I'm not sure they even meant to do it. Some of these guys probably even wear these things or have them as a fashion accessory. There's sort of copycat behaviors. Sometimes innocent people get caught up. And you just have to see some of the images on the news of what it does to um, devastate communities to know uh, what taking this sort of vengeance into our own hands does. Um, I think, metaphorically speaking, we do the same. There's a saying about stabbing people in the back. Uh, Look at politics. Look in the school playground. Look at some of the businesses that we work within. People are taking uh, the law into their own hands, and it might not uh, have quite so disastrous consequences, but if you've been on the receiving end of a verbal stab in the back, if you knew about it... um, it's not good. And churches, sadly, not this one, not this one, have been places that have been experts in this martial art as well. And before I even start um, preaching on the subject for this evening, um, I thought we could do some intercession now um, in response uh, to what I've already said. So, Lord, we... Um, offer you a society and a world where people like to take matters into their own hands, maybe out of fear, maybe out of vengeance. But so often, Lord, innocent people are caught up as part of this. So, Lord, we want to lift to you this one of many national challenges and crises this evening that of knife crime. And Lord, we pray that you'd raise up a generation of folks that would be able to influence in a positive way some of the perpetrators of this crime and offer them another way of being, another way of solving their differences, another way of uh, seeking status and cash and all the things that seem to be associated. Lord, we want to ask that you give us a heart of compassion this evening for those um, who've lost loved ones. And we can probably think of lots of families or those um, who've survived but lived with the trauma of it. And we think of the family in Claygate. Lord, would you show us this evening those things what we might not physically be taking up arms but we do it with words and with our actions. This evening, Lord, will we learn to trust that you're the ultimate judge? And Lord, would you help us to adopt ways that are wise and graceful rather than vengeful? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thankfully, the overarching message uh, from the passage uh, 1 Samuel 24 isn't vengeance, but it's grace. 
And I'm just going to go through the reading now, interject slightly, um, and um, let's see how we go. So um, verse 1 of chapter 24, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. We read that Saul and his army redirect their energies from fighting a nation to pursuing a man. Let's be clear, Saul wanted David dead. He was jealous of his popularity and success. Verse 3, he came to the sheepfolds along the way. Uh, A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now you can use your imagination there. We don't encourage that sort of thing in the church. David and his men were far back in the cave. The cave was a place of refuge away from the heat of the day. Verse 4. Then the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I just want to ask you a question. Who do we listen to? So the men are full of good advice here. Who do we listen to? Saul's men, sorry, David's men wanted Saul dead. Saul wanted David dead. Saul's men, no, David's men wanted Saul. I'm getting a real muddle here. Anyway, you know what I'm trying. Everyone wanted everyone dead by looks of things, bar one person. For them, it was the perfect solution to the problem, taking justice into their own hands. And we know from experience uh, that taking justice into our hands doesn't always play out very well. If you take out a world leader, as evil as they may be, there's no guarantee that five or six or many others won't pop up in their place. So let's take Saddam Hussein as an example. Has the problem gone away? Or what about killing Ben Laden? This week, um, it seems that he had a son who's got a lot of cause for vengeance now, and people are running scared. Was it a million dollars that are on his son's head? Then, verse 4b, David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, I have done a risk assessment for this. And actually, I'm quite anxious about doing this. I've got some scissors, but they're not sharp enough. And I've got a knife. And even holding this, having said what I've said a little bit earlier, doesn't feel quite right. It's a kitchen knife. Don't get too anxious. That's a very nice scarf, Alison. (laughs) 
I can replace it. It looks quite nice like this, don't you think? (laughs) It felt wrong doing that. But David had an option to do much worse. And he chose to cut the hem of an garment rather than take his vengeance out on the person that was seeking his blood. How do we hold back from taking the law and vengeance into our own hands? Think of politics, of work, of school, socially, maybe on the sports field. Some of us may have been guilty of doing that once or twice. Or church. Verse 5, afterwards, David David was conscience-stricken, as I am, for cutting Alison's scarf. He had respect for Saul, his king, the Lord's anointed. Even to harm Saul's garments was a terrible thing as far as he was concerned. Verse 6, he said... To his men, Lord, forgive it that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him. For he is the the anointed of the Lord. Verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and didn't allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. David refused the temptation and opportunity And some would argue the right to take justice into his own hands. He wouldn't harm the Lord's anointed. Verse 8, then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. Respect again, my Lord, my king. Then we hear David's big speech. Imploring Saul not to believe the lies about him, David casting himself as respectful and trustworthy and loyal. David was the boy, now the man, who'd played the liar for him and defeated Goliath. He was not going to meet out on Saul what Saul deserved, nor meet it out on his men, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He wants to break the cycle of bloodletting, which is still so prevalent in our society today, in cultures, but also individuals. Verse 8 continued. When Saul looked behind him, David, imagine this, was bowed down, prostrate before him with his face to the ground. Verse 9, David said to Saul, why do you listen to when men say David is bent on harming you, this day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. Some argued for me to kill you, but I spared you. Under immense pressure, I think he utters three important words. I will not. Maybe it could be retranslated as God 
wills not. Verse 10, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father, respect again. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but didn't kill you. Saul has had a near death experience and he slept through the privilege of knowing it but he's very well aware now what's happened he's been given his life back last week I don't know what service I was speaking in probably quite a few but I met a bloke that I um, knew 20 years ago he used to work with and we somehow had to have uh, lunch together and uh, he's just had cancer he should have died and he was so so thankful not prayed many prayers, I don't suppose, in his life, but he did pray one uh, to be kept alive, and he believes he has been kept alive. He's been given his life back. Maybe we meet um, not quite as extreme as this, but maybe some of you who are living your life your own way and then decide to live your life God's way found his forgiveness, his grace didn't get what you deserved. Maybe some of us, on a good day, would think the Lord's given us our lives. We're born again. We've been given our life back. We've been given a fresh start. Verse 11, David makes his case. See that there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old, old, old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave you into my hands, but you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. Verse 20. I know that you'll surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you'll not kill off my descendants or wipe my name, wipe out my name from my father's family. I think this is quite a big ask. But David responds positively. Verse 22. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. I personally um, judge Saul quite harshly. I think his repentance and any tears that he shed were probably crocodile tears. Do you know that? It's like fake. Well, the evidence suggests that it was quite fake. And it's quite interesting 
um, that um, Saul returned home and David went with his men to the stronghold. Like they weren't hugging and kissing or anything like that after he did his sort of crocodile tears act of repentance. David kept a safe distance. He did the right thing, but he was really wise in that situation as well. I'll just um, get you to, to reflect for a few moments on the cloth and the knife and maybe situations you face that you'd rather this came to the fore. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? But I think we've all got it in us. For me, the overarching message of this passage is grace. It's also a story as part of a bigger story, which me, for me speaks about the sovereignty of God and kingship. It's also a story about God's people. Like this was, this was God's family, his chosen people. And they weren't just sort of falling out with each other. They were trying to kill each other. Like that's quite bad, I reckon, isn't it? For any family of God or any family to be doing such things. But this is God's chosen people doing this sort of stuff, a family dispute that's got seriously out of control. So I've got three um, short reflections. And the first thing um, just for us to reflect on this evening is how do you handle conflict? How do you handle conflict? And there's plenty of it out there. So if there's no conflict in your life, I would like you to check your pulse at the moment. Because like, if there's not conflict with other people, we try to keep that down to a minimum. Some of us have got internal conflicts that are going on too. And actually it's the internal conflicts gone wrong that sometimes turn into the external conflicts. David faced into conflict, but he did it from a safe distance. And I would say that there's, um, you just got to be really wise about this. We do need to resolve conflicts, but there's like not one size that sort of fits all. We have to respond in different ways at different times and look at Jesus' examples in the gospel to learn a little bit more about that. We need wisdom. Um, some situations are not for us to sort out. We need to leave it to other people. Some situations are hard um, and they sort of have to be left in the Lord's hands and we might be invited to do something. I love the it sounds a bit strong, but I love the passage. I have to remind myself when I want to take justice into my own hands that uh, my scripture teaches, the Lord says, it's mine to avenge, I'll repay. And you really want God to avenge in a really vicious way, don't you, when you say that sort of prayer. But actually, we run the risk of him offering the same grace to that other person as he offers to us as repentant sinners. Sometimes we need to get involved and go towards the situation. And um, often I think 
it's good to do this and to go into situation and maybe to use um, some high-level skills, okay? Do you want to know what the high-level skills are? You know what it is already. That's the first one. It's not a knife, is it? It's to use our ears. Maybe it's the, there's one in here as well and in here, and I'd like to call that discernment. And then maybe, just maybe, and I'm a bit quick to sort of draw this first and not last, but we're allowed to say something as well, possibly. But maybe you have to be wise about what we say, and we just hold on uh, back on that sort of vicious weapon, because it can be used um, in grace as well. The second thing uh, that I'd like to just get us to reflect on, uh, I think the Bible passage challenges us how we view authority and... um, For Christians, uh, we might not always, or anyone actually, we might not necessarily understand or appreciate our circumstances and those that have authority over us in the the church and in the world, um, but recognize that God's sovereign in this situation. I think um, I've been brought up understanding that I'm meant to pray for and respect those in authority, but I've spoken to people that come from places like um, South Africa under apartheid. And that's like quite a tricky call there, isn't it? And, and what about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Any, you, some of you might know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but um, he challenged the Nazi regime. He didn't say this is okay because it plainly wasn't okay. And it's thought that he might have been part of a plot uh, that was going to kill the Fuhrer. But if you read his writings, they're some of the most profound Christian writings that you will ever read. It's difficult, isn't it? So again, it's not one size fits all, but as a general rule, we're to respect, and it's always a right thing to do, to pray for those in authority, regardless of how good or bad they are. And maybe, just maybe, like David, we can learn how to submit to earthly authority, but in a safe way. Thirdly, the Bible challenges us to examine how we exercise authority. We can hold a position of authority or power. Saul had it some of the time. David definitely had it in this situation. And uh, we just need to be wise about what we do. It seems to me that bloodletting seems to breed bloodletting and it never seems to to go away. Um, But uh, maybe with us and how we exercise authority, look at the fruit of our actions. Authority, I think, is given often by followers and it's not ours by right. So if we mess up loads and loads, and you'll have heard me probably say this before, just look behind you and you'll find not many people following. Um, Saul wasn't worthy of respect, but I think he got a band of followers probably out of fear and maybe a loyalty because of his position. I imagine that folks who served David often did it willingly. There was very little in it at that time, maybe, for them. When we think the, when we think the use and misuse of authority um, is, um, well, it, it's, it's not been exercised properly, where there's injustice, betrayal, conflict, um, what do we do in those situations? And 
And I think we could do, um, we can't do any better, actually. I was going to use a negative, but we can't do any better than look at the life and the witness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come into Lent now, I just think about Palm Sunday and those welcoming crowds. And a few days later, it going completely pear-shaped. Folks that he'd sort of fellowship with, one betraying, the other abandoning, trumped up charges, being whipped and scorned. And it wasn't quite a knife crime, but instead of maybe a knife and there was a sword, there was, I imagine, and there might have been more, but three nails. And for my um, three nails, I go to John's Gospel and I think of um, three words. When God fell short of giving us maybe the judgment we deserved, his three words on the cross, and he said a few more, he said, it is finished. It is finished. God chose grace. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So to close, they're not in the passage, but I could stretch it a little bit to make it in the passage if you could use your imagination a little bit. But I think um, maybe we need to know this evening, words from the Lord, I know you. I know you. I've chosen you. And as Christians, and this is the link with the passage, You are the Lord's anointed. I know you. I've chosen you. And as far as God's concerned, you're his anointed. And with his anointed, and I think he applies this to all human beings, actually. Three more words. I love you. And the heart of the passage this evening isn't about vengeance It's about forgiveness. So maybe you need to hear this as well this evening. Three more words. I forgive you. Amen.